For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's a Sunday night, I guess. Back from shore. And getting there little by little. But still have to take it easy. I'm going to do a bio tonight. Try to do one. Um, this is being sponsored by my very good friend, Morris Freeman, Dr. Mace Freeman, Dr. Mo, as he's known. And um, the occasion is his father's third yard site, Norm Freeman's third yard site. <clears throat> and uh, was a very beloved parent. And I want to redo the the nusa, the wording from Dr. Mo and his brothers. We approach the third yard site of Avi Murray Nissan Ruben Ben Shammai as Norm Freeman, whom my brothers and I consider our greatest mentor and teacher. Anything that I ponder and all I have to do is picture dad for a few seconds and I get clarity on this issue. Pretty good. No one came close to the deep impact he had on us growing up in those golden years in Randallstown which is a neighborhood in Baltimore. His impact only grows with each yard site. I again realized the great gift the Almighty granted us and that he left an heir of COVID. In other words, he passed away and they had the whole funeral and they sat Shiva. I remember this just before Corona hit. So they were able to have a normal um, funeral on Shiva. We were, right after that, everything closed down. We were all with him and we left Basham Baba, we had a proper funeral in Shiva the minute before Corona arrived. This alone underlies underlies his sacrifice for us and his greatness. So, and I knew Norm Freeman as well. I spoke at the funeral, actually. And so I joined in the tribute. <clears throat> I was thinking yesterday and today who to talk about. And nobody in mind. And for some reason, a name popped up. And I wouldn't let go of it. And so I said, okay, I'll do it. Out of nowhere, a name popped up out of nowhere, and that's the Marmal Ashkar. Why him? I don't know. I don't know, but uh, I'm gonna try to do him tonight. Ramosha Alashkar, or as the Shiva guys called the Marmal Shakar, which is wrong. And I've always been a- a- attracted to him for decades, even though most people never heard of him. Um, I'm not sure 100% why. But there was a famous biographical article I read, oh, many decades ago, uh, from uh, uh, Hordetsky, I think. And uh, I remember Nathan Adler at that time was in college. He got it for me at a Hopkins. The Koros Rabonis is a collection of 10 or 12 essays on early modern Gedolim, you might say, by a famous Moskilic historian. And for some reason... It stuck in my mind, and afterwards I used to look inside the tubas from time to time. So let me focus our attention over here. This is one of the big Sephardim, maybe among the greatest of all the Sephardic rabbis, which is quite a statement, at least in my opinion. We're talking about someone who lived in the 1400s and the 1500s, that Tekufa, and a very, very interesting life, although I would say till this day, he hasn't been properly studied. It's if somebody's looking for a dissertation topic or something like that. He he's he's a guy, in my opinion, that you could uh, go to town on. The Marmar Ashkar, Ramosha Al Ashkar. Although the way it's spelled, a lot of guys call him Marmal Shakar or Marmal Shakar. You know, Shiva guys don't know how to pronounce anything. So here we're talking about somebody who lived, born in the 1460s. And different opinions on the dates, and died in the 1540s. So, you know, it was close to 80 when he died. That's a fairly long life. And uh, a very interesting person. Uh, if he's born in Spain in the 1460s, that itself is very fascinating. Because Spain, the Sephardim, yeah, you know, I was supposed to go to Boca this week, I think. That's not happening because of my heart uh, troubles. So uh, I was going to do a Sephardic topic, but ending up doing a different one for this uh, 
podcast tonight. Spain is one of the two places that was big Malcolm Torah. Uh, there have been Jewish communities all over the place. But just because there are Jewish communities someplace does not mean it becomes the center of Jewish culture, particularly of Torah culture. Those are not so common. And broadly speaking, Ashkenaz and Sephard emerged as the two places with significant Torah scholarship. Not the only places, but they're the most significant. And most of the people that you and I have heard of are Roshonim, Achronim, are uh, either Ashkenaz or Sephardic. Now, you know, there are a couple of Italians here and there and that sort of thing. There are, but it's very rare. It's, it's, it's much more rare. And even the Italians, most of them either Ashkenaz or Sephardic. So, for some reason or another, they're developed in Spain, and they're developed in Ashkenaz, uh, centers of Torah scholarship. I mean, Gemara stuff, in significant ways. <clears throat> now, in the case of Spain, there was uh, the Muslim period, when, up to the Rambam's time, the Malcolm Torah was in the part of Spain ruled by the Muslims, and not the northern part of Spain, which was ruled by the Christians. However, that changed. For one thing, the Muslims prohibited Judaism when the Rambam was young. That was the end of Torah scholarship in Muslim Spain. And instead, they transferred the flag to the north of Spain, what they call Christian Spain. And there's a whole galaxy of Rishonim and so forth in Christian Spain. Uh, ben Yonah, the Ramban, the Rashba, the Ritva, the Ran, all the guys you hear about in the yeshivas, they're in Christian Spain. And Rosh, Tour, so forth. Now, the thing is that that chugged along until 1391. And then pogroms broke out all over Spain. We've talked about this before. And Jewish life was shattered. 50% of the Jews in Spain converted to Christianity under the pressure of the pogroms in 1391 and afterwards. And Yiddishkeit went down the tubes. And it was an open question whether or not anybody will survive. That's why I don't like to, you know, somebody told me they're going to a Pesach hotel in Barcelona. I said, the heck with that. Barcelona does have rich Jewish history. But in 1391, they were either wiped out or forced to convert. And then there was nothing left. So why would I want to spend Pesach in the damn Barcelona, you know? But whatever. Um, so it was a rough time. And I would say that Judaism underwent terrible tortures for 30 years, from 1391 to 1421. And then conditions improved. This is 100 years before 1492. And in 1421, things went back to better. And one of the, and the Jews were allowed to rebuild Judaism. However, half of them were Christians and couldn't return back to Judaism. They're the Murano, so this created a gigantic problem of its own. But I'm going to talk about those Jews who, for whatever reason, were lucky enough not to have been forcibly converted in the 30 years between 1391 and 1421, because that's where our hero comes from, this group. Uh, I've talked about this many times in the past. Perhaps you remember, you could have two brothers um, in 1391 or 1392 or wherever, and one could be walking, uh, to use Baltimore language, one could be walking on Park Heights, and the other one could be walking on Ricetown Road, not far from each other. And it so happened that right down Ricetown Road came a whole Christian mob, and they jumped this Jewish brother, and they said, if you don't convert to Christian, we'll kill you right now. And he, and he did convert to Christian. Mashanki and the other brother happened to be, at the same time, walking on Park Heights, and just as a luck of, luck, luck of the draw, as a mazel, there were no mobs came by, and he wasn't forced to convert. And now you have two brothers who have always been chabrus and everything. 
and one's a Christian and one's not a Christian. You see what I'm saying? And what I mean by that is the brother who was jumped on Rystown Road, he and his children, little and void, now have to be Christians or else they're in trouble. But the brother who was lucky enough to be in Park Ice Avenue, because of the fact that he never was jumped, was allowed by the Christians to continue to be Jewish. So the Jewish population between 1391 and 1492 was half and half. Half were these people who had been forced to be Christians and they were just up the creek. And the other half were people who had the good mazel that things never happened to them and they were allowed under Catholic laws to remain Jewish. When the Violence subsided in 1421. So the kings and all the queens and stuff told the Jews, you can get your act together. The 50% of you who did not convert. And they did. And it's very famous. They had the Takanas of Allah the Lid. I don't want to go into details. But suffice it to say that the Jews who survived as Jewish did several things. One of which was to put an increased emphasis on education and Torah scholarship. Now, I wouldn't say all the 50% of Jews were frummies. Plenty of them were not frummies at all. Quite the opposite. Uh, that's a story by itself. That's the Fritz Bear book. But they certainly did have their percentage of frummies who were interested in Jewish scholarship, in rabbinic literature, in Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. The most famous person that emerged from here was the brother-in-law of the richest Jew, from Jew. The richest Jew was Benveniste, and brother-in-law was Yitzhak Kampanton. I never did him. He's the one who wrote Dark Gemara. And he was like the Iran Cutler, so to speak. Something like that. And he rebuilt Torah, if you want. Um, and the Dark Gemara is an extremely interesting book, but I won't go into it now. So he had a number of students who were hotshots. And our hero learned by one of the students. So our hero today is Moshe Alashkar, who was born in the 1460s. Uh, Yitzhak Kambantone started in the 1420s. One of his students, his hotshot students, started his own yeshiva with Shmuel Balenci, who had a yeshiva in uh, Toledo. And our hero learned by him. So here you are in the 1460s, the 1470s, and the 1480s, okay, when things are bad for the Jews in Spain. Uh, they got little by little, they crept forth, got worse and worse, until, as you and I know, the Jews were completely kicked out of the country. But even before that, they were xerous by the king and queen, Ferdinand Isabella, that the Jews are not allowed to live in this part of Spain, and now I live in that part of Spain, and they have to pay extra taxes and junk like that. In spite of everything I just said, if you were into learning, and you went to a yeshiva, as our hero did, and you were in the coastly based Medish, Yom Valila, it kind of passed you by. And so here we have somebody who is uh, very smart, he even writes about himself, he was a child prodigy, learning up a storm in the yeshiva of Shmuel Valenci, who was famous back in the day. I know nobody's heard about him today, but he was famous once at a time. These are the Sephardic rabbis who are fanatically rebuilding Torah scholarship in quality and quantity to the best of their ability in the wake of the, in the aftermath of the pogroms of the 1391 period. It's not exactly the same thing, but it's a little bit like those who were in the yeshivas, let's say, for example, in American Israel, let's say, in the 50s, where clearly the message was you have to rebuild what was lost in the Shoah by Hitler, you know, who killed everybody. You know, that, that kind of feeling. And our hero was one of the best Talmudim. Okay. You know who was also in his yeshiva? The, uh, what do you call it? Ain Yaakov, you know, Yaakov and Khabib. So, this the small elite, not large, of Sephardic Talmud students who are learning up a storm. 
1492, when our hero would be 25, 26 years old, something like that, uh, having had this extremely good Gemara education, and being Spanish, he also learned Limudic Hold to some degree. I remember he learned Arabic, things like that. Um, so, uh, when they get kicked out of Spain, he's leaving a, a Spain in 1492, a very serious Talmud Chacham. And he will spend the rest of his life as a refugee, sort of like the Rambam. Oi, back in Spain it was Givaldic, but no longer exists, which was true. The trouble is that the Jews who left Spain in 1492 were really screwed because, and there's a whole book on this called Shevet Yehuda, which was written at the time. Since they were helpless and they're leaving with their money, whatever they had, and they had no protection, so they were seized by pirates and were killed and raped and then taken advantage of and all kind of terrible things like that till they came to safe shores. And a lot of times when they landed some shores, the locals uh, mistreated them or killed them or stuff like that. There are a whole bunch of horror tales, horror tales in the Shevi Yehuda, what happened to the poor refugees who left Spain. Now these are the Sephardim Tahrim. These are the Sephardim who would not stay behind in Spain and fake it out and convert. These are the ones who gave up everything for Yiddishkeit. But instead of being welcomed as heroes, they underwent terrible travails until they finally landed in safe places. If they did, many of them were killed along the way. So our hero, who is not a rich guy, it's going to be major, in my opinion, that's a major part of his life. He's not rich or well-connected. Clearly didn't marry some Rashiva's daughter. Um, and so he'll never be a Rav in the classic sense of a community, even, even though he was super barhachi. But uh, his brilliant scholarship will have to shine on its own in a different capacity, as we shall see. So it's famous that he was also kidnapped by pirates. Who knows what they did to him? He wrote a poem later on about it. He's a poet. But he eventually escapes and makes it to Tunis, Tunisia. Now I'm going to tell you something that most people don't know. The Spanish, that is to say, the two kingdoms of Castile and Aragon, which united when the Queen of Castile married the King of Aragon, Ferdinand and Isabella. Isabella was the Queen of Castile, and Ferdinand was the King of Aragon. And their kids were supposed to be the rulers of both kingdoms, which created the modern nation of Spain. Spain means the combination of Castile and Aragon. <clears throat> so, um, the Spanish, I think you know this, uh, 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 the, the Castile and Aragon, they conquered the last Muslim stronghold in Spain. That was Granada in 1492. That's where they then issued the decree kicking the Jews out of Spain. So Spain is a funny history. Um, once upon a time, in the 600s, it was all Catholic. And then in the early 700s, the Muslims invaded and took over 98% of Spain. But they didn't take over the last 2 or 3%. And then the last 2 or 3% got their act together, the Catholics, and they launched the Reconquista, the Reconquest, which means they launched a war which lasted 8 centuries, 800 years, to get back what they felt had been taken from them by the Muslims. So notice this was a Christian area, Spain. You Arabs came in and conquered it from us. We're getting it back. And in 1492, they finally did. That means they got every single piece of the old Spain back, which is now Christian. And that's why they kicked the Jews out, because they said they only want Christians over here. And 50 years later, they kicked the Muslims out also. So, uh, so Spain should be pure Catholic. And they succeeded in this. Now, hold on for a second. If you look at the map... I think many of you listening to this podcast know a little bit about geography. If you don't know a lot, you'll notice that Spain is opposite North Africa. It's what we call the Straits of Gibraltar. 
So opposite Spain is Morocco. And then over next comes Algeria. And next comes Tunisia and Libya and Egypt. Listen closely to what I'm about to say. Once upon a time, North Africa was Christian and then was conquered by the Muslims and Islamized, right? Imposed the Islamic religion on them. I'm talking about in the 600s. Uh, so the Spanish, Ferdinand Isabella, and she died and then he took over Ferdinand. They were on a roll and they said, why should we stop with Spain? Everything we captured and conquered from the Muslims was just taking back what was ours in the first place. Let's do the same thing for North Africa, which once upon a time was all Christian, and that's true, and has now been conquered by the Muslims uh, for, you know, 900 years, whatever. And now let's go and take it back. So after 1492, for a couple decades, the Spanish, who had the best army, uh, a lot of what we use in, 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 in today is from the Spanish army, like infantry used to be uh, ruled by the, led by the Infanta, the Spanish princes, and uh, sergeant and major and all this other stuff. <clears throat> it's all Spanish terms. So it was a major effort and successful to reconquer North Africa. So the Spanish took over whole sections of Morocco and they raided and attacked Algeria and Tunisia and so on and so forth. Now, why am I telling you this? Our hero, Moshe Alashkar, got out of Spain, was screwed over by the pirates, somehow or other got away from them, <coughs> made his way to the Jewish community in Tunisia and Tunis, I was there for 18 years. And he figured, like many, okay, so I'll, I'm a Spanish Jew who ends up in North Africa, which is what you find among the Moroccans, the Algerians, and Tunisians, and Libyans. They're Sephardim. They're also non-Sephardim, but they're the Sephardim too. The Magurashim. Um, but here you are in the year 1510. I don't expect you to know this, but the Spanish are raiding and seeking to conquer Tunis. And without giving you too many details, in the course of the 1500s, the Spanish several times captured Tunis and sacked it and raided it. And um, sometimes the Muslims won, sometimes the Spanish won. Uh, the Muslims send out pirates to raid the Spanish. It's a whole gonza business. So the point of the matter is like this. Our hero, so I guess... Heck with this, it's 1510, the Spanish are coming here. To be very exact, they imposed a tribute for a while on the Tunisians, and the Jews got scared that maybe they'll extend uh, the laws of Spain to Tunis and they'll force everybody to convert or leave. And so he got the heck out of there. So he spent 18 years. So if he was, 20, let's say, 26, when he ran away from Spain in 1492, plus another 18 years, that would put him like in his mid-40s. So here's a guy who, who learned of a storm, but he's Nebuch. He's a Jew living in time when it was really tough to be Jewish, Sephardi, because the Spanish Imam is chasing you. You get it? It's not enough you got out of Spain, but now they're raiding and they might even conquer and annex North Africa. Um, if you know anything, Ad Hayom Hazer, Spain still holds two cities that they conquered um, in Africa. One's Ceuta and the other one's Malia. So uh, if you're really interested, you can go to uh, the Morocco today and go to the Spanish enclaves and they're like colonies of Spain. There's a Jewish community there in Ceuta and Malia. And it's an old complicated story because the Spanish did not kick the Jews out of Ceuta and Malia. Uh, but they might have later on so our hero didn't want to have nothing to do with any of this. So he got the heck out of there and he ran away to Greece. Which, believe it or not, to Patras, which was held by Venice. Again, the map was very different in those days. Venice, the city-state, had an empire of its own called the Venetian Empire and included the big halic of Greece 
and uh, and there were a lot of Jews in Patras. But that didn't work out either, and eventually, make a long story short, he goes to the only safe place at that time for Jews, at least that he felt, and he made the same choice as the Rambam, the Hainu Egypt. And so, Marmosh al-Ashkar ends up in Egypt, like the Rambam did, with the following difference. When the Rambam came to Egypt, he more or less became the chief rabbi there because he was head and shoulders above everybody else. And the Egyptian Jews recognized that. Masha'en came. When our hero came to Egypt, you already had other Sephardim that had come in, and uh, they owned the shop, namely the Radbaz, David ibn Zimra, who was a Godot also, no question about it, a gigantic Godot. So you have two gigantic Godolim of the first rank, both from come from Spain, they learned up in Spain. They are uh, both geniuses. And uh, Darad Baz was already chief rabbi. And he was tight with the Richie Riches. I spoke about him before. They cut him into the business deals. And so it's not no, there's no chance that this poor refugee is going to become chief rabbi in Egypt. But he became a dying on the basin because Darad Baz and the others are like this. You can already tell this guy is Mr. Halacha. And I would say that, I don't know exactly when it started, but probably in Tunisia, his reputation spread as a gigantic Talmud Chacham, especially in Halakha Lamaisa. And so he already starts to get, in his 30s and 40s, shalas from all over Europe, all over the Mediterranean. And that will continue for the rest of his life. That's what made him famous. That's how we've heard of him today, because he joins the Pantheon, of the famous responsa writers. Now, he was 20, 30 years, I don't remember how long, in Egypt, uh, where he, you know, that's a full-time job to be on the basin of Egypt as a, a velt of Shilas, and based in cases that you deal with every day. And he's always writing to people, like, I don't have time to finish the answer to you. But he got, like I say before, Shilas from all over the place. Um... And his after his death, these are collected into the into a book, Shalos and Shuvas Marmalashkar, and the Shalos are all fascinating because of the terrible times in which he lived, and um, uh, how should I put it? Uh, he covers every possible kind of case that you could you could come up with, particularly uh, family matters like Gittin and uh, Agunas. Now, just think about what I'm about to say. The Aguna situation was catastrophic in the period I'm talking about because the Jews were kicked out of Spain and then pirates and then Spanish invasions. And Egypt itself, where he moved to, was conquered by the Ottoman Turks, which was actually good for the Jews. But there's another set of wars. And every time there's Andre Musia like this, families are separated. Pirates take one and not the other. This one is kidnapped. So it was really bad news for the Jewish female. Because there are a lot of situations where she can end up with an aguna. And then the question becomes, is the husband dead? And then it becomes a question, what kind of aid is you rely on? Uh, and it becomes a question, you know, aid echad, or a guy masich vitumo. It's a very complex matter. Or a ship went down a lot of times. Pirates or wars would result in the ship sinking. And, you know, the husband went down with the ship. And that's all that stuff from Yavamas, Mayim Shainlam Sof. And these are serious, serious Shilas. It's famous that our hero, to the degree possible, was the champion of the Agora in his day. I'm talking about the early 1500s. He really tries very hard, whenever possible, to figure out a way for the Agora that she should be able to get married. Now, there's a, one or two cases I remember that he couldn't. Because it doesn't always work. But when he could, he did. And um, and remember, he was on the basin in uh, Egypt, which is a very Khashua basin. This is an era in general where there are a lot of famous Sephardi Gedolim like him. I would classify him as among the greatest. That's my opinion. But, uh, you know, there are other big heavy hitters out there at that time. And uh, to read his stuff is just very fascinating. Now, 
he really got emotionally involved in some of these cases. The most famous uh, Now I want to tell you something. There is, as I said before, a very interesting biography from yesteryear, from about 1895, something like that, by uh, Shmuel Arnhordesky, who was a very famous Moskilic historian, and for some reason, he included the Marmalashkar in some biographical essays that he wrote. And, you know, it's got its pluses and minuses, but um, but he really got into the Agunah stuff, I remember this. And if you go on Hebrew books, you could probably find it. It's called the Korot HaRabonut. I believe it's on the Hebrew books um, in there. And uh, one of the very famous cases is when he butted heads against a, another uh, a contemporary of his who was also hot stuff from Spain, and that's Marie Beirav, Ariaka Beirav. Okay? And it was a whole big uh, uh, business back and forth about this girl whose husband was in Tripoli, and uh, what was the case here? Let me let me look inside. Hold on for a second. Here it is in, in the in the index, the Maftera Shalas. Just listen how complicated, you know, the story can be. Din Bas Achas Katana This is by the Sfarim, of course. Bas Achas Katana was a girl who was under twelve. Shabo Adim that she got married without her father's consent. Obal Karcho, Bir Tripoli, Vaholach Baila Oz Beshivya, and then pirates carried the husband away. And she came to Egypt. And the Basin in Egypt allowed, didn't consider the first marriage a real marriage. They let her, the Basin, I repeat, let her marry a guy in Egypt. And they had children. And then a certain rabbi went to Jerusalem. And he went and <clears throat> found Adam, uh, <clears throat> four different Adam, uh, that that in point of actual fact, the first marriage was with the father's consent, which Midorites accounts. So in other words, Ubertsono. Um, so if that's true, now the guy who went to to do the investigation was Yaakov Um So basically, you have a girl who's living in Egypt, and a guy becomes a heresy hunter to find out stuff. To pre- it's like you find in lo- online today. They'll say, this gets really not good, or this thing's not good, and this rabbi's a crook, and so forth. That was going on. And he said he, he spoke to four Adam, and that, that the original marriage was a good marriage, therefore the second marriage was not, and therefore her children for the second marriage are mom's Aram. So he's messing her life over. Uh, now, the two Adam, the four Adam that he spoke to, one was pair A and the pair of Adam B. So one of A was puzzle, <laughs> and the other one was a puzzle. So you don't have, you know, two pairs of Adam. And the question was that do the psulim, but in the other hand, let's put it this way, but one from group A was not an aid zone, and one from group B was not an aid, you know what I mean, uh, apostle. So you can, can you count one from A and one from B um, who were consulted separately to make two Adam that the first marriage was uh, with the father's consent, therefore the kids of Mamzerim from the second marriage. And he goes back and forth, um, and he talks about, so notice it's a nice, juicy kind of Shiloh, but boy, Obviously, Marmalashka is the one who gave the Heter, or at least the basement did. And now this guy's coming years later, I repeat, years later, and trying to uproot the whole thing. And he cussed him out. He's trying to mess this girl up. And you're nuts. And uh, and all the riots you bring are the opposite. Let me, let me find it. I can't find exactly what I'm looking for, but he says to the other guys, Yaakov Rab, uh... You are trying to make her in a gunna. 
your chumra is a yagila, which really means, of course, you're a chamor. And when he won't be mavatal as das yaka, and he said, you're still bad, he said, Lo aleichem kobali das maskilim muschalim, you dumbbells, ketanuigdom, habito u, chibuto, shisha zevli buto, atsasi lucha lachzer bacha, plumber hotterbi, kiedacharoa, shanafa yusub binyanecha. You see, all your arguments have collapsed. She called Varech ain bushum mamish, filimusum, vamamum kalsasum, vainlim lo shorish lo anuf, lo karsum lo konuf, umiti adati mata. Mavid I I have doubts whether you know what you're even saying. No, he really took. You really got into it because he felt that the other guy's being overly mocker. There are many of these personal like situations that pop up in the chubas of the Maramalashkar, and he really got uh, very emotional in them. I remember there was a student in Italy, and he also gave in trouble. And he says, "You're such a dumbbell. I hereby revoke your smicha." <laughs> And he complained to his rabbi in Amar and Padua. And Amar and Padua said, listen, you can't invoke the guy's smicha, you know. Maybe you don't agree with him, but whatever. Uh, it was like it was like really a wild and crazy case. So um, there's a lot of this emotional stuff that becomes so interesting when you get to the Shuvah uh, and Marmalashkar. Now, I'll say it again. He clearly, and he had his enemies. He complains about them. He writes poems about them, things like that. Eventually he left Egypt. So maybe because he shot his mouth off and, you know, let's put it this way, he called a spade a spade. If he thought the other guy's wrong, he wasn't too diplomatic about it. Uh, maybe that made him a lot of enemies. I don't know. Uh, he clearly, as I said before, was not a politician to know how to get along with the richy riches. So the most he could be would be a dying on the basin. But I, and it's very likely in my mind personally that... The others didn't like him because, you know, here's a Bayesden with so and so many dying on him. How come he gets the shallots from all over the world? You know, how come they don't turn to us? Uh, but people already knew that he's like a giant posek. He's very clear. His language is very clear. Um, and maybe cause resentment among his his colleagues. I mean, I said, Libby, I'm really, this probably would happen. I don't know that for sure. Uh, but... Uh, he was operating, therefore, in what we say the first four decades of the 1500s, uh, which is a very interesting time because, uh, let's put it this way, the Jews in Spain are really screwed over. They become Goyim. But there's so many Agunas and Almonos and missing uh, husbands and family crises, which is the detritus of the aftermath of 1492, plus the Spanish invasions of different areas in North Africa, as I just said before, plus the Ottoman-Turkish conquests in the Middle East. So, um, you know, it, it was a hard time to be Jewish in that part of the world, unless you really were located. Like, if you stayed in Egypt, you didn't budge. You know, I guess it was okay there. But elsewhere in the Middle East was not Pasha at all. And uh, it was also a time of great, how should I put it, Emuna uh, problems. Because people were saying, why is God so bad to us? And that led a lot of people to say, it must be Mashiach time, Barbanel, people of that nature. You know, they figured it must be the Hevle Mashiach or something like that. And our hero wasn't like that. He's very litfish. He's very sober and, you know, uh, straightforward. You know, like, if we're suffering, we must be sinners, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but the times he lived were very, very difficult. Now, um, but it was also a time, and he's part of this, where the Sephardim conquered the Middle East. They moved, like he, our hero did, to Egypt, to Israel, to Syria, to Turkey, places like that. The local people were not Sephardim. They were whatever they were. There were the Romani out in Turkey, and there were the Syrians in Syria, and yet Israelis in Israel, and so forth. And here come guys like our hero. He wasn't the only one. And they basically say, move over. We're taking over, because we, we can kill you in learning, which was true. You see, when the Jews left Spain, they included among the ranks some people who were very, very, very big in learning. And 
who's going to be the posting over here? The, the dying, if not the new Spanish guys. And these Spanish guys want to impose you know, the Spanish norms, which were the Talmudic norms. Uh, and, you know, the Radbaz, for example, is famous that he got rid of the system in Egypt where they skipped the silent Shemun Asrei, even though the Rambam had uh, legislated that back in the 1100s because there's too much talking in Shul. And the Radbaz says, we're going back to the Talmudic system, which is you have a silent Shemun Asrei and then a Chazar Sashatz. And similarly, our hero, I remember he has all these questions about in Egypt. Uh, I forget, there's something about when they make the bracha at a, at a bris. I think they used to make the bracha after the, the cutting was all over. You're not supposed to do it that way. And he said the local minhagim are wrong. On the other hand, he doesn't want to make a civil war. It's all, he's very much part of the process where um, the Sephardim little by little conquered and Sephardiized the Middle Eastern communities. Which is a very interesting, very interesting phenomenon, and he's from that first generation that was from Spain, as I said before. Now he also was um, he wrote a parish on Rashi. He wrote a lot of stuff that has got lost. Um, one of the most interesting things is is parish on Perkiavis, and the reason I say it's interesting is because, as far as I know, it didn't survive, but. It was around in manuscript form in his time, and he was a very famous guy in his day. And so you find that a lot of it, you know where? In um, the Meder Shmuel. You know what I'm talking about? From Shmuel Azidah. There's a, like a sheet of Mekobetsis on the Perky Elvis, and it, it's very good. From a Talmud of the Arizal. It's not Kabbalistic at all. And uh, he collects. It's really a sheet of Mekobetsis. It collects uh, all different uh, Pirushim on Perkyavis. I think the 1500s is when Perkyavis became normalized within Judaism as part of the liturgy on Saturday. Riyasukar writes about it. And Rishmul uh, Uzida, um, really, it's, you know, he, he it's a class. I think you know what I'm talking about. I imagine many of you listening to this podcast are familiar with the Meta Shmuel. Which you can get now in English, or you can get it in the, in the kudos and things like that. It's very famous, and he had um, Mar uh Perkyovis, and he quotes them a lot. So if you ever do Perkyovis, like in the summer, for example, and if you ever do the classic stuff, which is um, the Meder Shmuel, that's to my mind, that's the way to do Perkyovis if you haven't done it before. You do the classics, then afterwards you do the uh, the modern stuff, and um, is written in the fifteen hundreds. Again, he was he was Talmud of the Rizal, who was a generation later, um, in the later fifteen hundreds, and he's all the time quotes the Marmalashka. Uh I remember he says Don't make yourself like a lawyer. So he says it means don't make yourself a lawyer to accuse God of injustice. Because a lot of people were saying, we got kicked out of Spain, we're getting screwed in North Africa, we're getting screwed in the Middle East, it's it's terrible to be Jewish. Why is God doing this to us? What have we done so bad? Don't ask Shilas like that. You understand? Those we're not in a position to haul God before the bar and accuse him of injustice. And that just reflects the type of guy he was. You know, I mean, the Medrash Shmuel has the Barbanel and the Miri and I mean, Beniyana and all these people, but he always, he often, very often has the Marmalashkar. So that's an interesting place where you can run across his stuff if, let's say, you're not the world's biggest uh, uh, responsa reader to get in all that heavy business. But you can also see our hero, um, I would say, m- more easily and more interestingly, perhaps, in the Pirkei Elvis. So if you ever get the Medrash Shmuel, I'll say it again. I like my edition naturally as the Nakudos one. I believe it's in English also, and it's a it's a very famous classic. Um, so the Marmalashkar is in there as well. Um, now I would uh, call attention to uh, the following. I can't do justice to this because you have to read the shells, and in the middle of them is when he 
when his personality shines through. Which is, I don't care what you say. I am I'm, I'm, I'm defend this girl no matter what. And all this, it's just an interesting guy. <clears throat> One of the most interesting parts is at the end, in one seventeen, he has a whole defense of Maimonides. This actually is Nogea to the Summum Bonum series I'm doing now and the Maimonidean controversies that they're releasing. My team is releasing these days uh, when I'm still recovering uh, from my surgery. And herein lies a tale. The Rambam, uh, as you know, was controversial for some of the things he said. And therefore, there was the Maimonideans and the anti-Maimonideans already in Spain after his death. Um, the Rambam died in 1205. 200 years later, was born a real frummy in Christian Spain in 1390. He didn't live so long. 1390-1430. whose name was Shemtov and Shemtov. You probably never heard of him. <clears throat> Very interesting guy. And he was an anti-Maimonidean. Now, uh, if you're born in 1390, that means you're one years old when 1391 hit Spain and all those pogroms hit and half the population converted. So the guy, Shemtov and Shemtov, who grew up from, was lucky enough never to be jumped by a mob and never to be compelled to change his religion. So he grew up in the teeth of all the stuff that's going on. And somehow or other, he was in a from environment. And he was horrified, as were the others, that so many Jews in Spain um, converted. Now, I'll talk in this but he didn't believe in that. You know, uh, when the Crusades hit Ashkenaz, there were mass suicides by the Frumis. But when the pogroms hit Spain, there were some suicides, but for the most part, the Jews converted en masse. So that 50%, which is a gigantic number, converted under pressure of the violence from the Christians. This is famous. Right? So, this guy, Shemta Benchenta, who lived at that time, said, I blame this on the Rambam and guys like him on the left-wingers, on the modern Orthodox, on the people who are into Hakira, into rationalism and all that. It weakened the faith and therefore it left the Jews of Spain who were big fans of Maimonides with a deficient amount of Emuno and they didn't have the gumption to give up their lives, Al-Kiddush Hashem, which is what they should have done. That's his thesis. And he therefore wrote a book, Shemta Ben Shemtov, called Sefer Ha'amunos, uh, in which he has a whole series of charges against the Rambam. Believe it or not, you're going to laugh at what I'm about to tell you. I have the Sefer Ha'amunos with Manuk and the Kudos. There's a... Uh, I can't imagine who did it, but obviously some from guy in Israel. I have a book called Sefer Amudi HaKabbalah, which has early Kabbalistic-type literature, and not only Kabbalistic-type literature, but anti, anti-rationalist literature. And it has here Menukad, Sefer Amunos, L'chacham HaChassid Shemtov and Shemtov, L'chibra Sholel HaPhilosophia, and he's arguing in classic style in favor of Kabbalah against philosophy. It's not a small book either. It's not a small safer. Uh, if you want uh, a, a whole book which is a polemic against rationalism as an argument in favor of mysticism, uh, you, you, you get this. It's, again, it's called Amudia Kabbalah. And whoever's interested will find it around, Sefer Munoz. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's it's not a small book at all. And uh, it's very interesting reading. And boy, does he take you off to the Rambam. Oh, my goodness. Blames him for everything. And he points out all kind of uh, passages of Kfira, as he understands it, in Maimonides. That's what he does. Including the kind of stuff I spoke about the other night in terms of the Riven and the Summum Bonum and all the rest of it. Okay? 
Um, but he also has a lot of Kabbalah stuff about the spheros and things like that. Okay, fine. Now, by the way, I got to tell you something funny. So Shemtov and Shemtov, Shemtov is a Jewish name. It's Klonimus. It's Shemtov. Klonimus. So uh, he was, I guess what we would call a right winger and a strong anti-Maimonidean. His son, Yosef, wasn't like that. He was a, a pro-rationalist. It could happen. And his son, the third generation, which takes you to the middle, late 1400s, which would be Shemtov II, Shemtov and Yosef, right, was the reverse of the grandfather. Isn't that funny? And those of you, very, and he was a big fan of the Mordebuchim, believe it or not, the grandson. And if you ever get one of those Classic Murnavuchim's with the uh, Mikras Gedolis, shall we call it? Or, uh, what's his name? Who called it that? The, probably somebody called the Four Sons. The Chacham, the Rasha, Tomei, and the So if you open a regular old-fashioned Murnavuchim with the Mikras Gedolis, you see Shem Tov. That's Shem Tov and Yosef, who was the grandson of the original Shem Tov, and Shem Tov, who wrote the Sefer Amunas, was a whole diatribe against the Rambam. Well, let me tell you this. When the Maramal Ashkar got a hold of this, he hit the roof. Boy, right? He hit the roof. And he wrote a whole long thing, which is almost like a contrast by itself. This is a limud if somebody wants to do this. I never did it with anybody. He says, this is a limud by itself um, to learn with the Chavrusa. It's safe for Has. Hasagos, Hasagos sheisak, hisak the al sefer amunas shechiber. Excuse me, shechiber shemtov and shemtov. Adover al al Rambam, outside b'kai v'abuz, who spoke improperly against Maimonides, and uh, oh boy, Zigimel. Uh It's a long treatise in which he tries to argue point by point. The shemtov is full of it. He mamish got it all wrong, and the Rambam is one hundred percent right. And in the words of our hero, he said, I can't believe that in Spain they didn't burn this book of Shem Tov in Shul on Shabbos Yom Kippur. Shabbos Yom Kippur. <laughs> so he says, interesting. He was very from, obviously, the Marmalashkar. And he knew Kabbalah too, but he's he's super Rambo. Rambo then was the greatest of the Sephardi Rishonim, and you can't uh, say nothing against him. And he tries to answer point by point all the stuff. And it was the Rambam cold. And it goes on and on and on, page after page after page. Although, I can't find it now. I remember there was one or two or three things the Rambam said that our hero was not able to answer. And he is the one. This is where you find the famous story. It's a Baba Misa. It's a famous story. They said, oh, don't worry. At the end of his life, the Rambam changed his mind and gave a Kabbalistic approach. He met a guy who taught him Kabbalah at the end of his life. And the Rambam said, boy, I didn't know any of this. And uh, therefore, I changed my mind. But he died before he could write anything about it. It's a very famous legend um, that the, the Kabbalah bring. It's actually in the, in the Maramalashkar, believe it or not. Even though he wasn't that type of guy. And uh, it goes to show you that... Uh, you have two different sensibilities here clashing, at, both very from in a very interesting way. One is to attack a left-wing hashkafa, and the other is to attack anybody who has the chutzpah to criticize a gadol. So which is worse? Attacking a left-wing hashkafa or attacking a gadol, no matter who it is, uh, uh, you know, of, of, of great stature, that's a chutzpah nara. And obviously, the Maramalashkar, attacking the Rambam itself is like a bigger sin than attacking anything the Rambam said. It's just so interesting. So, uh, he has all these different sorts of things that are in there, which makes his book so uh, interesting, in my opinion. Now, the Maramalashkar, as I said before, eventually left Egypt and eventually ended up in Yerushalayim, which is apparently where he wanted to be. Uh, but he, and he was, by the way, friends with the Ralbach, you know, the the uh, Levi ben, ben, ben 
Ben um, Chaim, who was the uh, Sephardi chief rabbi of Jerusalem, he's the one who argued with the Maribe Rav over the Smicha, and he was the son of uh, of uh, Dan Yaakov. And Dan Yaakov, I told you before, was a Chavrusa, was our hero in the yeshiva back in Spain, in Toledo. So it was like old boy network. And you'll see in the Shibas of the Maramalashkar, sometimes they have back and forth him and the Rabach, because they were both big gadolim from that era, and they're all heavy hitters, uh, very heavy hitters. And uh, it's just interesting to see that. So he ended his life uh, over there. I don't think anybody would have heard of him, but his kids made it their business that the collection of responsa of the Charles and Jubas should be sent to Italy, and it was published in Italy about 10 years after his death. And that made his reputation. Ever since then, the Charles and Jubas, Myron Malashkar, are like Nixie Tone Bars. Everybody knows. It's one of the classic Jubas over him. That, that saved his his fame, uh, properly so. And so uh, his rulings, you know, are there always, he's a player. I'll give you one example, it just comes off the top of my head. He's the one who says that the women don't have to cover all their hair. They can leave some like, like uh, I guess, about the time I said, you know, well, some of the sideburns or something like that. He says, I'm sure that's how they did it. Time of Moshe Rabbeinu and the Mishnah, Mishnahites also. Uh, and others are more machmer, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But you know he's he has so like certain famous rulings, um, like I say the one about the uh, about the the hair, that's kind of famous and uh, other stuff also. He's very very famous about um, what's it called? You know when is Ben um, uh, So you go like Rabbeinu Tom. You go the other way. He has a famous uh, tshuva on, on, on that subject. You know when is Shkia and. And and so forth, uh, yeah. He, in other words, he's a player, player, and the shach and the others they all quote him. Um, but it's because the son was able to get it uh, published, and therefore saved the father's fame. So I wouldn't say that he had a classic successful career, because a guy like him really should have become like the chief rabbi of Egypt or Damascus or Constantinople or Salonika. He was without question on that level. But you know, politics is politics. And you got to know how to play the game and have to be situated as well. And Lamaisa, at the end of the day, he was a refugee. He was a greener. He was a guy from Spain who knew a Velt. But, you know, and he did know Arabic, so that must have been a big help in the Middle East. But, uh, you know, he, he, he probably was poor. Um, so he comes across as a very, very interesting uh, kind of figure. Used to be that it wasn't published in a great format. Then they published in a better format, and I had it home, but it wasn't so tempting. Uh, more recently, the Zichron Aaron uh, outfit, not long ago, put it as part of their collection of the modern Shubas, uh, and that's a pleasure to read. Now, I don't know if it's exactly, um, let's put it this way, I don't know if they did a critical edition, because I do know that he used to cuss out his opponent sometimes, and the first edition has it, and the second edition afterwards, they took out a lot of those, um, you know, personal expressions of disapprobation, shall we say, which makes it more interesting. So I don't know if the Zichron Iron one, uh, you know, includes it or not. And they have a certain amount of notes in there. Uh, but it's a pleasure to read. So if you're at all interested, uh, I'll say it again. He, in my opinion, is waiting for a dissertation, you know, for a buyer, it's for a book. I don't think anybody's, to my knowledge, no scholarly work has really been done on that. Just some of his poetry, which I'm not into, but, uh, you know, religious poetry. But uh, he was obviously a major player. And um, uh, he would be a very good subject for a, for a good historian to sink his teeth into. Uh, so uh, there is a, a name you don't hear too often, but uh, was a very important figure back in the day, and clearly to my mind, you see people used to write to him, looking for Hector, I don't mean that in a bad way, I mean if he says it's okay you can rely that it is okay, he was a, of that madrega, so uh, anyway, my time is running out, it's going to close down here, so I want to thank once again Morris Freeman pay tribute to Norm, and with that I bid you all a good day
For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.